This podcast is brought to you by the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training, ADST. For more, check out our website at adst.org. ADST, American Diplomacy, Words and All. In the late 1960s, the United States had become polarized by the Vietnam War as even many defenders were beginning to question the goals and tactics of the military. One such person was William Watts, who at the time had been promoted to the position of White House Staff Secretary for the National Security Council under President Richard Nixon in 1969. The following is his interview where he recounts part of his time there. I was what was then, it used to be the Executive Secretary, Bromley Smith, Gordon Gray. What happened was that when Kissinger took over, he did not want to, and Nixon did not want to have, the Executive Secretary position of the National Security Council operation was a congressional approval slot. And they did not want to have that position approved by Congress. They didn't want to have it, because the National Security Advisor slot is not approved by Congress, which I personally think is a mistake. I think it should be. But my job was they, they gave it a different type staff secretary, and as such, I didn't have to be confirmed by the Senate. It was basically, I was, I was sort of in charge of running the thing, making it work. I did not have a specific line responsibility for any single policy. But on the other hand, the way that Henry worked uh, meant that you, I got involved with everything, practically. And a lot of times, you know, completely by, without even the person who was the the one responsible, for example, the China opening, John Holdridge was the staff member responsible for China. He didn't know about the, all the secret stuff that was going on. We had a, a, um, an adv- a, a third country agent who was going back and forth between Washington and Beijing with a one-time pad, and we were dealing directly, and the link was directly from Kissinger to Zhou Enlai, and this guy was delivering messages back and forth, and Holdridge didn't even know about that. Um, Neither did Bill Rogers, Secretary of State. This was the way that Kissinger and Nixon worked. So, you know, you're involved, you have sort of, it's it's nothing and everything. It's one of those jobs, and I was, I mean, things like before the president would have a press conference, I was the one that had to get all the stuff together for the briefing books for him and so on. It was probably the most vicious atmosphere I'd ever worked in in my life. A combination of factors. One was that Kissinger at the beginning was extremely uh, nervous. Uh, he, had came, he came in as an outsider from, to the Nixon operation. He had obviously had been working for Rockefeller for years. He had sort of let, let it be known that he didn't think very much of Richard Nixon. Haldeman and Ehrlichman cordially despised him, and he cordially despised them. They were constantly made all kinds of disparaging remarks about him. I remember once going up in the elevator in the West Wing. We were going from our basement office up to the go to see Nixon, and then we got in the elevator, and Haldeman and were there. It was a small elevator. You can only get four people in it. And there'd been an article in the Post saying that Kissinger had been seen the night before at some watering spot in Georgetown with some woman or something. And, and they both, Haldeman and Ehrlich said, gee, you know, I thought you only took out boys. I mean, this kind of stuff. It was really sleazy stuff. There was this backbiting that you just can't believe. The saddest part of it to me was that it, you got two men who have or in case of Nixon had, there's no question, superior intellects. I mean, Kissinger and Nixon have uh, very exceptional brains. They're also corrupt, and I think in the very basic sense of the word. And, and these are amoral men. They don't, right and wrong was not part of their calculus. It was win and lose and, 
and so on. And there was, and they had in their natures, which I felt was, to me, was what was so dis debilitating working there. Uh, this combination of secrecy and paranoia, passion for secrecy, and fascination, back channels, double dealing. And they absolutely brought out the worst in each other. I mean, it, they really appealed to the worst instincts of the other guy. And it, I think that it's, it, you know, if you'd had people with comparable intellect with sort of more decent instincts, that it could have been one of the great combinations in the history of the human race in, in terms of ability to do stuff. When I came down, partly part of it was Larry had had sort of a collapse. And we went off to Brussels, and I came down after he'd gone. Haig came a little bit before I did. He was a colonel, and I would have to say one of the single most erratic, time-serving, egotistical, narrow people I have ever met in my life. If there had been any real chance of his getting the Republican nomination, uh, I had talked about this with Roger. We were going to go public. I mean, this guy told us stories after hours that, were, that he thought were funny, and we just couldn't believe he'd tell such a story on himself. The guy's close to a maniac. I mean, he's a dangerous man. His, that thing about I'm in charge here was just sort of typical of Haig when, after Reagan, the assassination attempt. But it was, Tony had a sort of a staff assignment role that become, he became almost like a son to Kissinger. It was a very interesting relationship. And I think is much less critical of Henry than Roger and I have come to be. Here, Watts answers how some of the people with foreign service backgrounds felt about Nixon and Kissinger's approach to Vietnam. That was a very mixed bunch of people we had there at the time. On Vietnam, I don't know how a lot of the others, the people like, say, Sonnenfeld, they didn't engage them. I mean, it was very much structured along the lines of the State Department by, by Bureau. The people who were most directly involved, which was Holdridge, Grant, and then this guy, I can't remember, they were kept an off, out of an awful lot of stuff. So Tony and Roger and I, when Nixon was giving his famous Vietnamization speech, remember in November of, of 69, we were given the task to draft it. They weren't even brought in on it. And we had a, we drafted a speech, I've still got a copy I think at home of the original draft, which was getting us out of Vietnam in about somewhere between <laughs> six and eight months. I mean, we wrote a very dovish speech, which was didn't get very far. And the f final speech was really basically written by Bill Sapphire and the people of and Pat Buchanan and um, Ray Price and so on. It's interesting, we didn't talk, people didn't talk across their policy boundaries very much. At least I didn't have that sense. Staff meetings were kind of pro forma stuff. It was, they were, they didn't and they eventually sort of just stopped. Just so like the same thing with NSC meetings. They, they were a lot of the beginning, they went less and less and less. And they became less and less meaningful. Because everything tended to get handled more and more by direct action in which we'd prepare the memo, Nixon, Kissinger would take the Nixon, he'd approve, we'd act. And wouldn't go through the standard NSC channels. I think it would be fair to say that the general foreign policy thinking of the NSC staff as a whole was substantially more, if you want to say liberal versus conservative, multilateral versus unilateral, I don't know what the right adjective is, but it would certainly say it was considerably more within a, a more liberal hue than that, other than the views of Nixon and Kissinger. 
and uh, you know, I don't know what the right word is. I maybe I'm not sure liberal conservative is the right one, but you know, I mean, basically, it was this. You would have thought this was a, de a democratic administration in terms of where a lot of the people on the NSC staff probably came out, much more than a Republican. Next, Watts answers how he feels about Kissinger as a sort of gatekeeper or political litmus test versus someone who is giving their best shot as to sending things where they should go. I think that he and Nixon, over a period of time, sort of came to feel that their views were sort of in sync. And I'm not sure that I mean, I, this is a, that's a very difficult question to answer, because I, that's not something I discussed with him. But I would say that I think his way of dealing and what, what went forward, what by and large, would be something that, because he knew what Nixon was after and that he agreed with, it was going to work in that direction. You know, it's very interesting. Scotty Reston had an interview with, with Kissinger, which I've never, I've got to track this down somewhere, because it's one of the most revealing interviews. At one point, and this was, Kissinger was then, I, I guess maybe he'd become Secretary of State by that time, and Reston asked him something, Henry, you are credited with having a grand worldview and a global strategist. How would you define it, or how, how do you, what, what is your view? And then it said, Kissinger chuckling, oh, if you want to find my worldview, you'll have to check with my speechwriters. And I thought when I read that, this was after I left, I thought, wow, that is so revealing of what this guy is. Basically, the strategist of these two was not Kissinger. The strategist was Nixon. Kissinger's the tactician. And it's one of the reasons, I think, that they work together so well. That I think Nixon really did have a, a real world views, and that Kissinger f understood those, and he was the guy that could do all the... the skullduggery to get to get this thing moving in that direction. Here, Watts talks about Kissinger's focus. The period that I was up there in the middle of 70, I mean, the overriding focus was on the Soviet Union. There were three things. It was Soviet Union, salt talks, all of that stuff. There was the very secret stuff going on in terms of Vietnam and also the very secret stuff going on in terms of China. But publicly, the big, uh, the emphasis that was taking what was the Soviet Union and salt talks. But, you know, you got to remember that this was this period leading up to the riots in Washington, the march on the White House, the, the people with their candles who were walking around the White House, that vigil. I had the, that night of that march, Tony and Roger and I were in the White House basement drafting this Vietnam, Vietnamization speech for Nixon. And at that time, I was still used to smoke. I went up to take a break, and I walked down to the southwest gate, you know, between the White House and the executive office. At that point, that was all open. People, drove, people were marching down around there. I walked out, and there was my wife and three daughters with, walking by with candles. They didn't see me. I mean, you talk about emotion. I'm in the inside. I'm the enemy. This is your own wife and children outside marching. Then, Watts talks about the decision-making and parameter-setting process. This probably happens with every administration. At the beginning, we had what we called NISMS, National Security Study Memorandum. And that would go out from Kissinger saying the president wants to da da da, and then it would be, a, and that would go to whoever it should go to in the bureaucracy. Papers would come back. And then that would all be, and then there was, there was a committee that was under Secretary's Committee, which was the highest committee under the NSC, which would then 
that would meet to review all of the different stuff that had come in from the, and everybody got everybody else's, and, they, and a sort of a conglomerate paper put together. And that would ultimately wind up as being the NSC system paper on the subject. But as I say, that was tended to be very long. And it had to have a cover. And the cover was written entirely in the White House. And so that was, that was where we took over. The NSC staff took over. Now sometimes, in some cases, it never went through that whole process. We just did it. Um, it would just be decided, and well, you have to, and we just go ahead and do it. And as the relationship between Kissinger and Nixon grew, it took quite a while to get to this. I mean, it was well on to end of my stay, but after at least a year after he'd taken over, or, that he would sign off for Nixon on some stuff. Not at the beginning, no. Or he could, if he, t he could talk with him. Now, that, the one thing that you never know in this, and I don't know how this works now, but Kissinger would go to see Nixon every day. I used to have to come in about 5.30 or so to go over the night's take to put together the points for, you know, for your meeting with the president at 8.30 or whatever it was. And we would have to give him the overnight take and figure what was the, what was the really critical stuff that's come in that you want to discuss with the president and so on. And then, of course, there would be the other things that were pending issues that we you know, were talking about. And those meetings were alone. And so what was decided in there and so on, it's hard to tell. And Nick's, but, but I think one of the things that clearly would happen is that Henry would get essentially a, a go-ahead in certain areas so that he could come back and he would be willing then to take the, to sign off on something because he would discuss it with Nixon. What was happening was that Al Haig was uh, moving himself up in the hierarchy, and he'd gotten by this time another star, too. I mean, he, his fastest promotions I would have been one of the fastest in the history of the military. And the guy was a ruthless infighter. I mean, I, I didn't know how many knives I had in my back until I left. And I was, as I say, I was getting frustrated by uh, by that, that, and the fact that I just was really had become very, very against what we were doing in Vietnam. I really had, in that big march when they had the buses all around the White House, to go to work I had the only one way you could get in. There were two buses you had to go in, and then between there was a double row all the way around. And I went out, and I was out, I left to, to go out and join the protesters out in front of, sitting out there with these kids all smoking pot, and goddamn um, Chapin. Nixon's appointment secretary, he comes and he's taking pictures. He looked down at me and he said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm with him. And then these guys said, well, who are you? You know, and I said, well, I'm Nixon's out kissing his deputy. They, they were cheering that I was out there with him. So it was, but this had been building up. I mean, even going back to that November speech that we were, I mean, that's a long time in advance. It was April, end of April when we were Cambodia. And I was, I just found myself increasingly, you know, working with a, in an administra foreign administration and particularly with a group of people whom I had really was becoming to, to dislike intensely, i.e. Richard Nixon, Henry Kissinger, Al Haig, and to a lesser degree, because I uh, hold him an Ehrlichman, I really actually quite liked. He, he was a guy that was you know, twisting slowly, slowly on the wind with his famous quote, but he was really quite a nice guy. Haldeman was the real ice man in there. But anyway, I, and so I, as I say, I was finding myself just increasingly in this position of being in the middle of something I didn't want to be in the middle of. And by this time, Tony and Roger and I had really kind of gotten to be quite close and, and spent a lot of time together. 
sort of talking things over and mulling, and that we were all sort of moving in the direction of leaving. Then what happened in my case, um, as we went into that final week of going into Cambodia, suddenly Henry sort of put me in as the, the key guy on all of this in terms of handling everything, and as the coordinator, and all of the most highly sensitive, there was a special Khmer slug that was put on anything to do with the operation the invasion plan. And that came only to me, and it went then to just, you know, others. And then we went through this, the famous Friday night meeting, when the so-called Bleeding Hearts meeting, when Henry called Tony and Roger Bob Osgood, who was the head of the long-term planning office in the NSC, which had no role, Larry Lynn, who ran the systems operation. And the, Henry, Henry said what's going to happen. He said, we're going into Cambodia. The decision had been made using fixed-wing aircraft. And I must say, I, this is something I will always regret that I didn't say, well, yes, but it's also ground troops. I didn't say it, and I wish I had. But um, I, don't know who, I don't know who else did know it. I know that Tony knew it. I don't know who else knew that. I mean, this thing was really handled tightly. Anyway, the meeting ended. I do, at one point, I did say, you know, he asked what we thought. And I said, well, Henry, one thing is that we're going to go into Parrot's Beak and Fishhook. We're going we're to flush them out of there, and they're going to keep going. They're going to run all the way to Phnom Penh. And that's the end of Cambodia. And he would, did not like that at all. Anyway, that was Friday night. On Sunday, he called me, Saturday night, before I left, and said, we're meeting tomorrow afternoon at 4.30, Sunday afternoon. And the president is going to name you as the staff coordinator for this operation. I mean, I would be the guy that became, not operational, I don't know, but, you know, somebody's got to have it all. And that was to be me. Well, I had written a memorandum earlier about the so-called October option, Operation Duck Hook, which was going to be a massive bombing of Haiphong and Hanoi, which I had written a very strong memorandum opposing. And in it, I said that if you go ahead with this, that my prediction was that we were going to have massive rioting around the country, that the National Guard was going to be called out, and that some students were going to be killed somewhere. And my last sentence in that memo was saying that you will have to be prepared. This was to Nixon. It was from me through Kissinger to Nixon. And it said, you will have to be prepared to deal as brutally with domestic dissent as you are with the Vietnamese communists. And they, again, just read RN and HK on the thing came back. No comment. So I just sent it back when we were going. I said, let's, Henry, this is it. I'll say it all over it right there. And then the next thing I know, these guys say, you're the staff coordinator. So I went home Saturday night and sat up a good bit of the night with my first wife. She later threw me out. And I went off on that day, on Sunday, into the office to get ready for this meeting. And I don't think that I, when I left the house, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. But anyway, I went through the day and preparing for the meeting. And, and finally, I said, no, I won't do it. So at 4 o'clock, I went to see Henry. And I said, um, Henry, I remember this very well. He, I was sitting at the sofa, and there was a table, and he was in a chair like that. I said that when I came down here, I wrote a letter to him very specifically. I wanted in this in writing. I said, I'm coming to work for you, but that my loyalties, and I want this in writing, go the following order. Number one is to my country and the American people. Number two to you, and number three is Richard Nixon. I'm surprised after I wrote that letter that he <laughs> gave the letter. Anyway, I said to him in this meeting, I said, you remember... What I said in my letter when I came down here, well, I said, you've just called my bluff, and my loyalties are to the American people, and I'm refusing the assignment, and I'm leaving. And then Kissinger said something that I'll never forget. He, Bill, 
your views represent the cowardice of the Eastern establishment. And I just came up out of my chair swinging. I was so goddamn mad and took a real roundhouse swing at him and I missed and he ran behind his desk and um, he said, I'm only kidding. I said, well, you don't kid about something like this. And I just stormed out of the thing. Buzzer in Hague's office. <laughs> and so he goes in and then he can't. And I went straight to see Winston who had sort of moved in there as an, as an assistant. And I said, Winston, look, this has just happened. Uh, this is what I've just said to Henry and I'm leaving. And I'm sure he's going to appoint you to replace me. And um, so you better be ready because he's going to call you in any minute. I, it's what's going to happen for sure because he was sort of his next trusted guy. As I say, Tony and Roger were sort of working across the street by then. And suddenly Haig came flying out of the Henry's office and came back into the situation room. And he said, what in the hell did you say to Henry? He's furious. He's throwing books around the room and he's screaming and yelling. And so I told him, I said, you know, he said I was going to be this, that, the job, I was to be the what, staff coordinator, and I told him I wouldn't do it. And at that point, Haig then looked at me, with a line that he practiced, because it was not that long afterwards, he used the same thing with Bill Ruckel's house at the time of the Saturday Night Massacre. He said, you've had an order from your commander-in-chief, and you can't refuse. And I looked at him, and I said, fuck you, Al, I just have not I'm resigning. <laughs> and this all appeared in the final days, Woodward and Bernstein's book, and, and in Cy Hirsch's book, and then there's my Davis Isaacson. My poor mother, bless her soul, she was reading the final days, and she came across all of this in the book, and she called me up. And she said, Willie, did you really try to hit Mr. Kissinger? And I said, I sure did. Said, and did you really have that altercation with General Haig? And I said, yeah, Ma, I'm afraid I did. She said, does it have to appear in print? <laughs> it was so sweet of her, my poor mother. Was. Anyway, I left. It's funny, I got home. And I walked up the walk to our house, and I, my wife opened the door. Because I, as I say, when I left, I really, she said, you know what you're going to say? I'm not sure. I'm not. And she said, you resigned, didn't you? And I said, well, how do you know? She said, you're f smiling for the first time that I can remember. It was really interesting. So that was the end of my government career. I was approached by several newspapers and individual journalists and offered some pretty handsome sums of money to, to for a, a big interview and so on. And I refused all of that. And actually, I got, went out of the country. We, My ex-wife and I had a place in the Bahamas, and we took off and went down there. And the decision, my decision at the time, to me, was very simple. In retrospect, and I talked about this with Roger Morris, we both agreed we made a mistake. We should have gone public. We should have called a press conference to announce our resignation and why. And perhaps even should have been said that there was going to be an invasion of Cambodia, although that's, that's, that we could have gone to jail for, and also you could be threatening an awful lot of lives. I mean, that's something that you really couldn't, uh, yeah, that was very, very dangerous, but at least after the fact, to come out and say something. Thank you for listening to Watt's account of his fiery departure from the NSC. ADST is an independent, nonprofit organization located in Arlington, Virginia. ADST's oral history collection begun in 1986, contains over 2,500 oral histories, unveiling the horrifying, thought-provoking, and the absurd events that help shape foreign policy. If you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make a tax-deductible donation to allow ADST to continue its work at www.adst.org. Thank you for listening.